everybody. I'm Donna Egan. I'm an alcoholic. Hi. <clears throat> Went down the wrong pipe. Uh, I am so happy to be here with you this weekend. Oli and Sharon, thank you so, so much. And Carrie has been so great and taking such good care of me. And it's been just so special getting to meet people I haven't met before and seeing people that I have known a long time. And, and Bobby, it's just such a neat thing to be able to get together with people. You know, my AA family just keeps enlarging and enlarging. And that's just what happens. Um, you know, we have a special, powerful, powerful, incredibly powerful program. And we have the ability to touch people's lives in ways that no one else ever does. No member of my family, no person I went to school with, no one has ever touched my heart like they have in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's such a privilege for me to get to come and visit AA and other parts of the country and, uh, you know, to, to be healed that way, to get, to get from you. And I, I always get so much more than I bring. And uh, it's just I'm humbled by, by uh, you know, by the invitation and that I'm welcome to come here and participate in this wonderful AA Roundup. And I've just been having a blast. I, I couldn't have been treated better. Uh, everything has just been great, and I want to thank you for that. Is everybody having a good time this weekend? There's a, there's a whole lot of work that goes into these, and I'll tell you, uh, that's something I've never gotten involved in. I've never been part of trying to make this happen, but I watch it and go, I don't know, it looks like too much work to me. Uh, um, but I'm, it's very much my privilege to be here with you this weekend. And uh, I you know, want to share with you, in a general way, what happened to me, what I used to be like, what happened to me, and what I'm like now. And you know, I have to tell you that my life is so incredible. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love this program. And I owe everything in my life to this program. It is by being in the rooms of AA and learning to work these steps and beginning to practice these principles that I have, you know, a life has developed around me that I know I would have never had a clue what it was like to live like this. And I really am blessed. I am way overpaid. God is so very, very good to me. Uh, you know, it took almost dying to get that through my thick head, though, because um, I came around AA for a long time before I finally got this. But, it, you know, there just isn't anything in my life that means more to me than Alcoholics Anonymous and the precious people that I get to meet here, the wonderful little new people that I get to meet that you can see it in their eyes. They don't know that there's another way to go, you know, and then you can also see it in the eyes of the people that know that there's another way to go. And we have a mother load here. I mean, this is just the most incredible program uh, and the most phenomenal way of life. Um, my sponsor always says that there's three things that makes me a member in good standing of Alcoholics Anonymous, and one of them is that I have a sponsor, and her name is Polly P. And another one is that I have a sobriety date, and that is the 5th of May, 1987. And the other one is that I have a home group. And my home group meets on Tuesday nights in Palm Desert, California, at 7 o'clock, it's called the Primary Purpose Group of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it is a great little home group. It's a, Oli and Sharon have visited and come to my home group meeting with me, and there's, there's people there with a lot of time and people there with no time and everything in between. And it's a very uh, enthusiastic, uh, welcoming bunch. I've been going to that meeting uh, for 12 and a half years that I've been living in the desert, and when I'm not at that meeting, somebody always calls me and says, where were you? I missed you last night. 
Um, very rarely. If I'm in town, I'm at that meeting, and that is a place that is very, very important to me. I'm accountable in Alcoholics Anonymous because of my participation in that and other meetings. Um, i got to tell you right off the bat, I am not a California drunk. I am a Montana drunk, and I am a sleazy little drunk. Uh, I did my drinking in these cowboy bars up in uh, near Red Lodge in Red Lodge, Montana. It's a little ski resort town of about 2,000 people. It has 14 bars in that town, and they all do just great. <laughs> Those are very successful establishments in that town. Um, you know. I don't know. It's just amazing to me. Uh, though every time I get an opportunity to, to share this, this is the significantly important thing to me, is why I know that I'm an alcoholic. And for the people that are new, or, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I know about me. When I came into AA, I could see, all right, you know, there were some similarities. There were, okay, so I drank a little too much, you know. Um, Okay, so I got in a little bit of trouble here and there. But I didn't really think that I was an alcoholic. Really. I mean, really. And uh, I was around AA for a long time before I found out what, what made me an alcoholic. I could always rationalize a lot of things and justify a lot of things. But, uh, you know, the deal for me is that I grew up in an alcoholic home. I grew up with every kind of abuse and violence and nastiness that goes on. Uh, and I am, you know, there's, in my personal study, and this is my opinion only, there's two kinds, basically two kinds of alcoholics. There's an alcoholic who will, you know, lives the life that they have, and they get angry and rebellious, and they're in your face, and, you know, att some attention is better than no attention, and uh, they're just there. They're going to engage and fight with everything. And then there's the other kind, and that's the kind I was. I just wanted to be invisible. I didn't want anybody to see me, notice me. I just wanted to cut my losses and not get hurt. I kept my mouth shut. I was an absolutely terrified little kid. And I grew up in this alcoholic home, and, uh, you know, I was convinced. And every time I get to listen to an Al-Anon speaker, it means so very much to me because I don't know where we would be without the program of Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous as well. I don't know where I would be, certainly. But every time I get to hear an al speaker, I always relate to this because I really believed beyond a doubt that the reason the things were happening in my home were happening there was because there was something wrong with me. And if I could just find some way to be good enough or smart enough or something, you know, if I was just better somehow, then they would love me and I would be okay. Now, before I say one more thing, I have to tell you that one of the biggest gifts that I've gotten in Alcoholics Anonymous is that I was taught early in my sobriety that it is more important that I pay attention to what kind of daughter I am to them rather than what kind of parents they were to me. And I want to tell you the freedom and the, the release from all that has been phenomenal. I mean, I am no longer a victim today. I am not a victim today. And I am the best daughter that I know how to be. I am as courteous and kind to them. I am attentive to them. I called them. I called them last night when I got here. My mother and father always, they live a mile from my house. Uh, they're still married. You know, my dad is uh, probably the greatest lesson I've ever had in, in long-term, sober, untreated alcoholism. He is a terrified, terrified little man. Um, you know, they, they tell this story I've heard in AA about the... Um, the loony bird or the goony bird or some kind of bird like that. And, and this, this bird is one that flies backwards in ever-diminishing circles until it eventually flies right up its own butt. 
And that is a, just a great description of an alcoholic, if you ask me. Um, and that's what's happened to my dad. My dad hasn't had a drink in probably 25 years, but he has not one solution for living, not one way to be okay in his skin. And his world has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. And he sits in his recliner and he waits to die. And he talks about it. He wants to die. My father is 71 years old. And, I mean, he should be going strong. But I'll tell you what, he's been old as long as I can remember. And uh, there were many years in my life when my dad would, you know, uh, complain. He's horribly depressed and very ill. And, uh, you know, he would talk about things and, oh, I'm just so worried about this and worried about that. And I was always trying to talk him out of it and give him some something to cheer him up, you know. And I found out that all that does is just irritate him. I mean, he doesn't want to be cheered up, you know. He just And so what I've learned to do is say, gosh, Dad, I'm just so sorry that it's that way for you. I just really hope that tomorrow is better. And I, you know, that's what I do for him. And um, it's given me a lot of freedom. My side of the street is clean where my mom and dad are concerned. And I love my mother very, very much. I will probably never have with my father what I always wished I would have had. But um, I'm a good daughter to him today. And, uh, you know, he's beginning to know that. I mean, little by little. Uh, just last weekend, he said to me, he just had a heart attack. And was in the hospital again for a little while and was hoping he wouldn't come out, and he did. And, um, you know, he just, he just thanked me and thanked me. They called me in the middle of the night, and I said, I'll be right there. You know, and I went over and got him, and, you know, we went to the hospital, and I spent the night there with my mom and dad. And, you know, and he just thanks me. He just says, thank you so much for everything you're doing. And I'll tell you what, I never heard thank you. Never. So this is proof to me that when I live by these principles, see, amazing things happen. And I, I no longer need their approval, which is probably why I get it. You know, I don't need that anymore. I don't hunger for that. I don't need for that to make me okay. But that is a really wonderful gift that I've gotten in my sobriety, and I'm so grateful. If I were to get nothing more than that, it's that freedom of knowing that, um, you know, that I am perfectly acceptable just exactly the way I am and that the way things were in my home didn't have anything to do with what kind of person I am or what I deserved. At any rate, um, I lived in this home, and I was the oldest of uh, four kids. And when I was 17 years old, I left home. Um, and I met a guy and married him. And we had five kids in six years and three months. And I was busy. I had things to do. And uh, I was, you know, my whole idea, I met a guy that was living in Charleston, South Carolina. And he was stationed in the Navy. And he said, let's get married. I was, I've always been very selective about the people I married. I married anyone that asked. I mean, if they asked, I figured they knew something I didn't know. So I married him. And I know that in the back of my mind, what I had in mind was to get as far away from here as I could and make a life that was different for me than the life I was living. And uh, so I married this guy. And we had started having all these kids. And I had not one answer for life, not one. I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. Way more responsibility than a person like me should have. I didn't know what to do with these children other than the physical things. You know, I knew how to keep them clean and how to feed them and, you know, clean the house and do those sort of things. But I didn't know anything about raising children. I knew how to shelter them and preserve their life. <laughs> but that was it. I had nothing inside of me. I was just so full of, of terror. Um, when I was 27 years old, my oldest child was six, my youngest was nine months old, and uh, my husband left. And we had gone back to Montana at that time. He'd gotten out of the Navy, and he left. Uh, he ran away with a girlfriend of mine. 
And um, I wasn't really tore up about that. I was really kind of relieved to have him gone, you know. Um, it was one less child to be worried about in that home. Uh, but at any rate, I went to work in the cowboy bars up in Montana, you know. And I can tell you that up until that time, I wanted to be good more than anything in the world because I thought being good was my only salvation. And so I was as good as I could possibly be. And when I was 27, I was done being good. Being good had not gotten me one thing I'd been looking for, and I was tired of being good, and I had given up on God. I thought God had dropped the ball in a major way in my life, and that he was just asleep at the switch. He either did not exist or he did not care, because I had tried so hard. And at the age of 27, I went to work in these cowboy bars, and I started drinking, and I can tell you just as sure as I'm standing here tonight, that when I started using alcohol on any kind of a regular basis, I found a power greater than myself that made life work for me for the first time. When I could put booze in me, I was happy, joyous, and free for the first time. I mean, it just, it was like I didn't have to be that scared little kid from Billings, Montana that didn't know what everybody else knew, you know. I didn't have to have the history and the secrets and the, the things that I ran from. I hated who I was. I hated the way my life was. And alcohol gave me freedom from that. Uh, you know, during my drinking, uh, there was a guy up in Red Lodge I used to get drunk with all the time. And he used to say, let's get drunk and be somebody. And I always said, I always said let's get drunk and be somebody else. And that is exactly what makes me an alcoholic. Alcohol gave me freedom from me. And uh, it made it possible for me to relax and just kind of take a deep breath. And it didn't make things go away. It just made it stop hurting for a while. And I needed that. And I was 27 years old, and I was done having kids. I had five kids, and I thought I'm not going to be hurting anybody but myself. And so I just did what I wanted to do. Um, I ran it into the ground in short order. Um, I am a terrible alcoholic. I'm a disastrous alcoholic. When I came into AA and I heard about people who drank for 20, 30 years, I felt really ripped off, you know, <laughs> because I didn't get to do it that long. You know, I just did it. I just couldn't stand one more minute, that's all. But, um, you know, I was, a, I was a bad, I was a blackout drinker. And I'll tell you, there is just nothing more annoying than, uh, you know, they're always saying things to you like, don't you remember what you did last night? You know, I hate that. That is embarrassing and humiliating, and it's never anything nice. I mean, it's always just these hideous things. I can remember standing there saying, God, I, I don't even think that about your husband. You know? I mean, people just don't understand, you know? It was just hideous. I was just an alcoholic waiting for a drink. And that's the deal for me. You know, I, I was a person who walked around on planet Earth with a huge amount of anger and guilt and fear and shame and self-loathing and secrets. And when I put booze in me, it gave me the only tool I'd ever found that successfully dealt with those things. And, uh, you know, it, it seemed to make those things go away. And I loved it. And uh, it was disastrous, and I wasn't very good at it, and I was a single mom. And I have to tell you that I could tell you a lot of funny stories about my drinking. I did some really wild little things up in Red Lodge, Montana. I got drunk in North Dakota a lot. We used to get go on runs and come over here and, you know. But um, the truth is, and what I need to remember is that, uh, you know, alcohol took everything away from me that was worth having, anything that was important in my life. Um, 
I'm the kind of mother that if I was trying to raise my kids today, I was a single mother then, and if I was trying to raise my children, um, uh, CPS would be knocking on my door. You know, somebody would be coming after my kids. I was the kind of mother that loved and nurtured and adored and abused and, and neglected my children all at the same time. I was the kind of mom that would walk in the door one day and wrap my arms around them and tell them how wonderful and beautiful they were and how much I loved them. And it was true. And the next day I would walk in the house and scream my head off because the dish rag was in the wrong place beside the sink. And they never knew. They never knew what they were going to get with me. I never knew the way it was going to be. It had nothing whatever to do with them. It had to do with how I felt about me. And uh, my children, uh, you know, have borne the legacy of of alcoholism. Alcoholism is a family disease, and it destroys the lives of people that don't even have it. And uh, you don't have to look around very far to know that. It's just true. Uh, Alcoholism had done a lot to destroy my life before I ever picked up a drink as a result of the way I grew up. And it was the same thing in my home. You know, I'm so grateful for my journey in AA uh, has taught me a lot of things. But, you know, my kids are adults now. They're no longer children. My sponsor says something really wonderful about that. She says that she knows that a lot of the problems that her sons have today have her name on them. But she said that what she knows is that their solution has their name on them. And, uh, you know, that's true. And I'm not saying, hey, the problem is yours, fix it. You know, believe me. Um, What I know is that I have to live by principles. What I have to do is do what Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me. And I have been an example, just like, like Bobby said today about her husband, that he had paved the way for her son. And it happens in here all the time. Um, my life has been an example and continues to be an example to my kids. Uh, but it was very, very costly for us. It was really costly for us. I was a completely spiritually uh, and emotionally bankrupt woman, and I was, I was solely responsible for these kids, and it was not a good way to be living. Uh, when I was 20, uh, I guess I was 30 years old, 31, in February of 1981, I hit AA for the first time, and I was in big trouble with my drinking, and I knew that I was in big trouble. I knew that I had really blown it about 10 too many times, and the kids were really upset with me, and uh, I have never been someone who had anything materially. I've never had cars or houses or money or careers. I mean, I was a bartender at the Snag Bar in Red Lodge, Montana. That was my big career. Um, But my kids meant more to me than anything in the world, and I was just losing it. I was just losing it. I knew I was in really big trouble where, where they were concerned. And so I went to AA. And for the new people that are here tonight, please, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. When I went to AA, I thought that what was wrong with me was that I drank. I drank too much, and, uh, and that if I could just stop drinking, that everything would be okay. And what I didn't even realize is that I didn't have a life that was worth living before I found booze. So, you know, you take away the only solution I've ever had, and it's just not very long at all before I am just dying for some relief. And, uh, you know, we hear it in the rooms of AA all the time about how alcohol isn't our problem. It's our solution. And it was. It was my solution. It was my higher power. It made it okay for me to be alive. And when I put that down, thinking that I would be living better and not having to hear those ugly words, don't you remember what you did last night, um, that it would get better, and it didn't get better. Because now that I don't have anything to buffer me from those things, now I've got to look at me. 
I mean, I've got to look at me, plus all the stuff I've been creating, all the wreckage I've been creating for myself. And it was not fun. And, uh, you know, I would sit in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, I could not hear the, the music. You know, I couldn't see what was happening around me. Um, I was just consumed with the pain I was in. And it would be invariably, it would be a couple weeks or maybe a couple months. And sooner or later, the day would come when I knew I had to have some relief. And the only way I know to get it is to get drunk. And I would tell myself many, many times, I'm just going to go get drunk tonight, and tomorrow I'll go back to AA, and I'll really, really try. And, uh, you know, that doesn't work. It just does not work. And you can die doing that, you know, and I nearly did. I probably had to raise my hand as a newcomer seven, uh, I don't know, 30 times over a period of almost seven years. I was just one of those annoying retreads that just keep coming back. And uh, and there were people in the me in the rooms that would say to me, I don't understand this at all. I mean, they, I just don't know. You just put the plug in the jug and you don't drink. How hard is that, you know? And then there were other people who understood. But, you know, you can't hear till you hear and you can't see till you see. And uh, I just I just kept hanging around. I would come into AA and I would put together as much time as I could and then I'd go get drunk and then I'd try to come back. And, you know, I remember people saying to me a lot of times, well, thank God you're back. And, you know, towards the end of that seven years, I used to think, what makes you think I'm back? Because I knew by now that the minute I put booze in me, it's anybody's bet. It is anybody's bet. Where I'm going to end up, how it's going to be, if I'll even make it back. And, you know, you can come in and fill a chair in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it doesn't mean you're in here. It doesn't mean you're in recovery. Uh, I heard a guy talk one time, and he said that you can sit in a chicken coop till your butt falls off. It don't make you a chicken. <laughs> and that's what happens in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, you can go to meetings day in and day out, but it doesn't make you a person who is recovering. There is a huge difference. It takes a lot of action and a lot of activity. It takes, you know, I believe that my sobriety is a gift. And I believe that that gift is offered to anyone who walks in the doors of AA. Anybody who comes to the doors of AA, that gift is offered to them. And I, I don't know, you know, in the last 15 years, I don't know if I, maybe the one thing that I've done that I didn't do before was that I was willing to do anything to protect that gift. Anything. I was willing to give up whatever it would take to keep that gift because that is my only shot at life is being sober. And, you know, consequently, I happen to love it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up the way I live today. I'm talking about the way I live with me, you know, how I feel when I go to sleep at night, how I feel when I wake up in the morning. I mean, I wouldn't give that up for anything in the world. Nothing in my life has ever come close to being that good. Um, I have gotten so many things as a result of getting sober, but boy, it took the initial getting sober just about killed me. Trying to get that done was a major chore. Over the period of seven years, I eventually lost my kids. I lost everything that mattered, everything. All the he's that I had around were gone. I was always hooking up with, you know, the drummer in a country rock band or something, and, and he'd be saying to me one morning, God, you got to do something about your drinking. And I was highly insulted at that. I mean, these are not exactly pillars of the community we're talking about. And, um, but they were, you know, these people were right. And they'd come and stay for a while, and then they'd leave. You know, and my parents were gone. My kids were gone. It was all over. It was all over. And I couldn't stay sober to save my life. Um, during that time, I went to treatment. And treatment, I'm very grateful for treatment. I think treatment is, is I'm not somebody who says, ah, eh, who needs treatment? Treatment is not designed for prolonged 
sobriety. Treatment is, is designed to create a beginning. And, uh, you know, they give us a lot of information. They give us a safe place to be. And it's really essential. In some cases, it's probably the only way that it can happen. But, you know, um, we were talking last night, and somebody said, well, you know, treatment just doesn't work. Well, yes, it does. But it's done when you leave. You know, it's over. That's it. It's like going to a movie, saying, I, you know, that movie, I just, you know, it's over. It ended. You know, yeah, it ended. It was designed to only last a period of time. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous is for free, and it is here that I learned to, you know, begin to develop a way of life. During that time, after though, I, after I went to treatment, and after my kids were gone, it took me two years. I wanted to be sober more than anything in the world, and I could not do it. Um, there's a guy in Long Beach that I love a lot. His name is Frank H., and he always says that Alcoholics Anonymous is not a program for people who need it, and it's not a program for people who want it. It's a program for people who do it. And I think that's right. I know that I needed it a long time before I wanted it, and I really wanted it those last two years. But it wasn't until I was under, uh, you know, serious argument, forced to take actions that were, you know, hugely different than what I thought would apply to my case, even remotely, uh, that I began to get some results. And what happened for me is this. This is the big thing where the change came. I did a geographic during that time, and I ended up in Kona, Hawaii. And I was over there, and I got drunk, and I couldn't, I mean, one more time, after about a year of sobriety, after going to treatment. And uh, I got drunk, and I couldn't stay sober. And it was just annoying to everyone around me. People were just, in Kona, they had this thing where they'd say, is there anybody here for their first, second, or third meeting since their last drink? And then everybody would look at me to see if I'm going to raise my hand tonight. And that, those people were just on my nerves, man. They were, uh, I knew people there that I knew didn't have two decent brain cells left. And they were saying sober. And I couldn't understand this. I'm not a dummy, but they were saying sober. And uh, I was in those meetings. I was just angry, angry, angry. I was so furious. I was just sick of you, sick of AA, sick of the whole thing. You know, everybody here that was just all happy, joyous, and free just, oh, they were irritating. And I just, you know, I couldn't, I could not get this. And it was just one more thing in my life that worked for other people that wasn't going to work for me, you know. And I was in a meeting one night, and I had never spoken the truth. I told you I've always been trying to be invisible, and I tried to do that in AA. I'd, I'd come here, and I'd just be quiet. I'd keep my mouth shut, try not to draw any attention to myself, and, and I was dying. And um, it was just not good. And I was in this meeting one night, and this guy, I don't know what happened, but my, my pressure cooker went off. <laughs> I just hit the limit. Um, this guy at the end of the meeting, he said, is there anybody here that has a burning desire? And, you know, for some reason, I just went, yeah, I got a burning desire for you. I said, you people make me sick. You know, you are always telling me that sober is better, and sober doesn't feel better to me. I can't stand the way I feel. I hate this. I hate this. And if I had anywhere to go, I wouldn't be here. And, you know, they listened like they do in AA meetings. It was just kind of this weird silence went over the room for a minute. And then somebody said, right on, Donna, keep coming back. You know, I thought, God, these people are weird. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous completely baffled me. I used to go to meetings in Billings and run into the same kind of thing. There was this guy, I love telling this, was this tall, skinny cowboy. I used to go to meetings all the time in Billings, and he just was the most annoying individual I ever saw. He was always dressed in black. 
you know, had some kind of manure on his boots and a big old wad of Copenhagen in his lip. And he was always saying stuff that was just like completely idiotic. I remember him saying, you know, when it comes to pain and sobriety, sometimes you just have to be like the mule in the hailstorm. You just have to hunker down and take it. And I remember thinking, you know, God, I was really hoping for more than that. <laughs> I mean, that is just not a big comfort to me. And I, he was the first guy that I ever heard say, he said when it came to drinking, he was like the tomcat making love to the skunk. He hadn't had all he wanted. He just had all he could stand. <laughs> I know. I know. Okay. These people are weird. <laughs> Anyway, I just blew my top in this meeting, and after the meeting, this guy came up to me, and I said, you know, I don't know why this program won't work for me, but it just won't work. And up until then, I had been stringing as many days together as I could before I drank, and I knew I was going to drink because I always had, always. I was just hanging as long as I could hang. And he said to me, well, how many days has it been since you drank? And I said, 45 days. And I, I was just at my wit's end. And he said, well, what makes you think it isn't working? I said, because I hate this. I mean, you obviously like these people. You want to be here. You like what you're doing here. I hate this. This is torture. And he showed me a line in the 12 and 12 in the seventh step, and it's one sentence, and it says, in every case, pain had been the price of admission into a new life. And I remember reading that and thinking, all right, you know, all right. Maybe what I'm going through isn't for nothing. You know, maybe this pain will amount to something decent. Maybe if I scrape it all together, I'll have the price of admission, you know. I mean, I was just desperate. And it really just kind of bought me one more day. I went to the meeting the next night, and I met somebody that saved my life. This lady uh, had just hit the island. She was there for a month's vacation right after her husband had just died. And she was just awesome. She was the kind of person that could just walk into a room and just light up the room. She was, uh, she was like 27, 28 years sober. She was almost 70 years old, and she was gorgeous. She had this big old Janis Joplin hair, and she tied it up in big silk scarves, and she wore a bunch of jewelry. And she just loved Alcoholics Anonymous, and she loved drunks, and she didn't care if you were drunk or sober. I mean, she just had this passion for drunks. And uh, she was awesome. I remember that uh, she came up and put her arm around me. She had this special gift that you get after you've been around AA for a while, and that is that she could look around the room and pick out the sickest woman there and go right for her, you know. <laughs> and uh, she came up and slid her arm around me, and she said, Sweetheart, you just stay by me, and everything's going to be okay. And I'm telling you, I just melted. I just melted. I mean, if I... I'm not, you know, I'm not complaining about one thing that's ever happened to me in Alcoholics Anonymous, but there was something very special about that kind of love. And I just melted. I was somebody who'd been beat up a long, long time. And I really needed somebody to tell me that I was going to be okay. And I just adored her. Uh, I really related to her story. I mean, I had five kids. She had two kids. There were some differences. She was, you know, I was a bartender at the snag bar. She was this, like, elite jet setter, go around the world and drink this expensive booze. But she was a sleazy little drunk. And I knew that she knew exactly about drinking. She knew everything there was about drinking. But the bit, best thing that I related to was that she talked about those feelings of anger and guilt and fear and shame and self-loathing and secrets. And when she talked about that stuff, I knew exactly what she was talking about because I came from a lifetime of that. 
And I knew there was nothing I had to be afraid to tell her. I knew that she wasn't going to judge me. She was awesome. She just had this. Just, she just lit up the room. She was just one of those really wonderful, loving people. And uh, she loved her life in AA. She had the most incredible sense of humor. She was, had just been treated for colon cancer. And she had the bag thing, you know. And she said that, um, that she was now a bag lady. She said that. And she said that she had the, the uh, elite distinction of being one of the few people in Alcoholics Anonymous who was no longer an asshole. And, uh, and she also said, she said, it's, it's really a drag because it's the most expensive thing I've ever worn and I can't show anyone, which I thought was really, she was just incredible. She had this incredible view of life, you know, and I just fell in love with this woman. Her name was Phyllis Cowman and she died a long time ago, but, um, I just was stuck to her like glue. And uh, this is the deal that saved me is we were on the beach one day and I said, Phyllis, you know, I probably need to do another four step, right? She said, no, sweetheart, you just need to do a first step, that's all. <laughs> and I said, I don't know what you mean. How do you do a first step? What does that mean? I mean, I know that I'm an alcoholic. I'm convinced that I'm an alcoholic. She said that there was implied action in the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous, implied action. She said that it says that we are powerless over alcohol and that our lives are unmanageable. And the implied action there is that you need to find new management. She said, you need to find yourself a power greater than you are that will solve your problems. She said, you keep trying to work out all your life problems, all your life issues with your own thinking. And she said, when you're doing that, then you're the only higher power you've got. And I didn't know that. I'd never heard anybody say that before. So I was like, okay, what do I do? And she said, well, tell me about your higher power. What kind of higher power do you have? So I started telling her about the churches I'd been to when I was a kid, you know, the stuff I thought I knew about God. And she stopped me in the middle of that explanation, and she said, let me tell you something. She said, any God that you can understand will be too small for your needs. And I was blown away. I mean, I was like, what do you mean? And she said, you've been trying to do this a long time. It's not working. She said, maybe you should be willing to consider something else. I was like, like what? I mean, what else is there? There's God and there's God. I mean, that's it. There's one, you know. She said this. She said, when you lay down tonight and you go to sleep, your lungs inflate and deflate all night long and your heart beats all night long and there's nothing that you do before you go to bed that makes that happen. I said, yeah. She said, when your time on this earth is up, there is nothing that you could do to add one more minute to your time on this planet. When your time is up, you're gone. And I said, yeah. She said, then that is a power greater than yourself. She said, that's something you didn't create, and it's something you can't control. And she said, if you wake up in the morning and you're breathing, then you are a spiritual being, and God loves you as if you were his only child. And I'll tell you, she could have said about a thousand things, but when she said that only child thing, she had me. I mean, I was grieving for my kids so bad. I missed my kids so much. I wanted them in my life so much. And I thought about this a lot. I said, well, you know, don't I need to know who God is? I mean, don't I need to know who I'm going to turn my life and my will over to? And she said, no. She said, it's none of your business who God is. She said, God knows who he is. If you talk to him, he'll answer you. And I said, well, like, what do I call him? And she just plays it all straight. She goes, well, you could call him God. 
I said, what do I do? She said, when you're alone tonight, I want you to do this. I want you to get on your knees and say this prayer. And she said, you can say it however you want to say it. Put it in your own words. But the idea that you want to put out there is something like this. You want to say, God, I don't know who you are, and I don't know what you want from me. But if you want anything to do with what's left of my life, then come on, because I don't know where to go from here. And I remember thinking about that, and I remember thinking, uh, you know, if I could find a God that loved me half as much as I love my kids, I bet that would be enough for me. You know, I remember thinking that was probably the most honest prayer I'd ever heard. I mean, I was always bargaining. I was always like, you know, I'll be really, really good if you'll do this, if you'll do that. But this was, there was no negotiation here. It was just plain like, if you're there and you want to do the deal, then let's do the deal. And I didn't know what was going to be expected of me. I wasn't sure what that would be. I didn't know about some of those, you know, those little ideas that we get, these uh, there's limiting ideas. There's um, The problem with those kind of things is that you don't realize that they're limiting ideas. Um, you know, the perception is off. And one of, the, one of the areas that my perception was off is when I was a kid, my mom would dress us up and send us to church. And I'm not begrudging any church for any reason. But I can tell you that I was an eight-year-old alcoholic waiting for a drink. And uh, I had a very active imagination. And um, I was a very sensitive kid. And they said things in that church that just scared me to death. I mean, I remember them telling me things like... Uh, when I was born on this earth, I wasn't born this beautiful, innocent little child. When I was born on this earth, I was born with all the sins of the world on me for all time. Now, that's a heavy stack deck for an eight-year-old, you know. I mean, that was just like I couldn't imagine how to get out from under that. And I remember them saying things like, if you've, if you've thought it, you've done it. You know, well, I don't know about you, but I think a lot, you know. I And there's some of that stuff I did more than think about. And... um you know, I mean, I just felt guilty. I felt guilty my entire life. And I tried from the time I was a little, little girl to establish a conscious contact. You know, when the big book tells me that I have a spiritual malady, that is exactly what's wrong with me. Because I can remember as far back as I can remember trying to establish a conscious contact. And I remember this church that I went to every time they said that if you wanted to get saved, you should come on up. Well, I came on up every week. And I remember the minister saying to me, you know, you, you can come up here if you want to, but... You don't have to do that. Maybe you should be baptized. I was baptized three times. I've been dunked, sprinkled, sprayed, you know, whatever they do. I mean, I was trying to effectuate a conscious contact with a power greater than me as long as I can remember. And when I found booze, I found a power greater than me that made life work. And that's exactly what it is. Uh, I went back into the meetings then. I mean, I thought about this a lot. I remember thinking how much I needed uh, to find this. I felt like I had finally drawn the line in the sand, you know. I went back into the meetings and I told everybody that I had a new higher power and it was my breath. And they said, that's nice, sweetheart, just keep coming back, you know. <laughs> but I'm, and I wasn't trying to be a smart aleck about that. I mean, I really meant it. Um, the, what I mean, I was just such a thinker, you know. I just had to cross-examine everything, but one of the things was this. When I would open my mouth and inhale to pray, I could feel the air on the back of my tongue, and it was the first time in my life that I ever looked within to find a connection to a power greater than me, ever. I had always been praying to some God out there somewhere that may or may not help me, depending on if I was good enough, and I was never able to be good enough, and now that I've been bad, God's not going to help me. You know, God is good. God is love, and... Uh, I could just never make that happen. 
And there's a place in the big book that says deep within every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. And it says in the final analysis, it is only there that he may be found. And that's exactly what happened to me. What Phyllis gave me was a tool that unlocked a door that I didn't even know was locked. You know, I was looking at, at my, pers- my perspective of what I thought you had to look like to live a spiritual life. And what she said is your spirituality is a given. It's a done deal. She said if you ever wake up in the morning and you're not breathing, you won't be here. So you don't have to worry about that. But she said, as long as you're breathing, God loves you as if you were his only child, and you are a spiritual being. You know, it was, I had forever been trying to create something instead of just accepting that it was. And she said, whatever the difference between a live body and a dead body is, I mean, that's a big deal. That's something we can't make. We can't create that. And she said, uh, you know, that is a significant force. And that's just good enough. She said, I'm not asking you to believe what kind of philosophy you're going to follow or what kind of religion you're going to have. You just put those questions on the back burner. You just address yourself to God and see what happens. And uh, that was the beginning of my sobriety, you know. And my life has been different since then. It was a true surrender. The thing about the breath, though, uh, I found out over the years a few things that were really interesting. One of them is that we have a, a former Catholic priest that lives in our area. And um, when he talks sometimes, he talks about the word spiritual. comes from the Latin word espiritus. And another form of that word is spirare, which means to breathe. It's the breath of life. It's at, to aspire, to inspire. Those are all base root same words. And I thought, oh, that's just so cool because that just starts with what I believed, you know. Also, I was in Hawaii. I was living in Kona, Hawaii when I met Phyllis. And in Hawaii, they call white people haoles. And you know what that word means? It means man without breath. Because the Hawaiians, when the white people arrived on the islands, they were so pale. The white people thought they had no spirit. And so it means man without breath. And I just think, that's so cool, you know. It just plays right into what I found. And in the beginning, I had no idea, no clue what God would want from me. You know, and I wasn't real sure that God was going to even be there. But it was something, this whole deal allowed me to, to kind of make peace with the concept of, of a higher power. And uh, it was enough to, fe- to effectuate the beginning of sobriety for me. Um, over the years that I've been sober, my prayers have changed tremendously. Um, I no longer uh, feel that I don't know who God is or what he wants from me. I for me, and this is just for me, I never, ever have any confusion about that place of peace within me. When I direct my attention to my higher power, there's never any question. And I think that, um, you know, what God wants for me, the God's will, like I can't tell you what the picture is like for my entire life. I don't know what the big picture is. But I know what God's will is for me today. I really believe that I do. And I believe that what God wants from me today is, number one, to be sober. Because if I'm not sober, I don't have a shot at surviving my life. And I also don't have a connection with him. But past that, my job on this earth is to be as kind as I can and as present as I can and as supportive as I can to whoever it is that walks through my day. Whoever it is. It doesn't matter whether it's my child or my mother or one of my sponsees or somebody in a meeting or the waitress in the grocery store or the guy on the freeway. I mean, my job is to be present and to pay attention to God's kids. And I'll tell you what has happened to me living that way has been phenomenal. It is, for one thing, it is a, it's such a loving way to live. I mean, I go to bed at night. 
I mean, I have character defects. Don't get me wrong. I have shortcomings, just as, just like I ever did. But often, I go to bed at night really knowing that I was current and present with what had to happen today, and I was a part of something good. And, uh, you know, it's been a phenomenal, phenomenal journey. Um, my entire, you know, picture has been... Uh, there's just a thousand things that I could have, 10,000 things that I could tell you about my life sober that has been phenomenal to me. I moved to California when I was about two years sober, and, um, you know, I was really working hard at that time to try to reestablish a relationship with my children, and it was, oops, it was very iffy and, um, and very bruised for a long time. And I was sober years, and it was still that way. And I really felt like, uh, you know, I was disappointed. I wanted, I really wanted a chance to be in their lives what I could be in their lives. And it, it just didn't turn out that way. You know, my, uh, my story that I have to share with you is that two of my kids have died in the last few years. And uh, it has been hard, hard, hard. Um, I was seven years sober when my son died. He died seven years ago, January 24th. And he was, uh, I had four girls and a boy. And uh, Daniel was a new member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was, he was 18 years old at that time, uh, just about to turn 19. And he was going to meetings, and he was lost. And I knew he was lost, but just like Bobby said today, I can't help my kids, you know. I can help your kids, but I can't help my kids. You have to help my kids. And, um, you know, I just kept thinking, you know, Daniel's going to get in trouble. He's going to start drinking again. And he did. He started drinking. And I thought, he's going to get in trouble one of these days, and that's when I'm going to swoop in with the rescue, you know. And it just didn't happen that way. He made it about six more months, and it was one month after his 19th birthday. And he just woke up one morning and said, I can't live like this anymore. And I've been to AA, and it didn't work for me. And he, uh, he committed suicide. He, took his, he uh, jumped off a cliff. And um, he was done. He was very done at the age of 19. And what happened for me is that I began to just lose my dream. You know, my dream was that if I stayed sober long enough and I did exactly what you asked me to do, that sooner or later I'd be given an opportunity to be in those kids' lives what I always wanted to be. Um, before, if this was before that happened, my second daughter landed at my house early, early, early one morning, and she had just gotten released from the emergency room where she OD'd. And... Um, and she was looking for some help, and I took her to a place out in Desert Hot Springs, uh, not far from where I live, and she went through the ranch, and she got sober and stayed sober. So Tracy was sober when Daniel died. Um, she uh, got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and, you know, who would have guessed that she would have gotten sober the first out of the chute? Uh, certainly not me, who is the chronic relapser in the family. Um, I was just terrified. I was just sure she was not going to stay around, you know, and she was just a kid. And, but she stayed sober, and she was sober for the rest of her life. Uh, she was five years sober, and it was two years and nine months after Daniel died. And I had been at that time just, li just fighting to stay alive. I just wasn't even sure if I was going to survive. I'm telling you, I was so, so depressed and so angry and so disappointed. Um, Tracy just, she caught a virus that was, uh, there's only been 63 cases ever diagnosed in the whole world, and it's just a very rare thing. And she was married and, uh, and had a little girl that was three at that time, and uh, she just got sick and died, and she was gone before they could even diagnose it. I mean, she was gone within four days. 
And uh, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was just like, what is happening to my life? And um, you know what I know today? Those are really, really hard things. I mean, that it shook, it, it shook everything in my life to have to take a look at what I thought I believed and what I thought I knew about what life was supposed to be. And um, I had to question everything. I had to come to terms with everything again. And what I, what I had to do was find God or die. And, uh, you know, it was an incredible journey. But what I can tell you is that the, the most wonderful and treasured thing in my entire life is that because of the pain of those two losses, I did have to find God. I had to not just make peace with God. I had to come to terms with a higher power in my life. And, uh, you know... I tell you what, I have, a, I have a relationship with my higher power today that I just would not believe is even possible for somebody like me, uh, except for those ex- experiences. It, it pushed me to the absolute edge. And um, it's a very, very painful thing. You know, Bobby talked a little bit about grief today. i got to tell you that grief is an, a highly unattractive emotion. And uh, in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, we are so solution-oriented that when people are grieving badly, um, you know, we want to help them. And when you can't help them and you can't fix it, sometimes we just back away. And the best gift that I've gotten, one of the thousands of gifts that I've gotten uh, because of these experiences is that I am no longer afraid of anyone's pain for any reason, whatever it is that they're grieving. And I really believe that grief is not about sadness. Grief is about healing. And I think that uh, parts of my life have been healed and strengthened and touched that would have never even been addressed if I hadn't had to go through these things. Uh, it has been a tremendous freedom for me. I am a woman today that lives with a whole lot of peace and joy in my life. I mean, I am no longer afraid of pain. I uh, don't like it. I mean, I'm not spiritually fit enough that I would do it all again. <laughs> but uh, i got to tell you that uh, I'm not afraid of that. And when I came into the rooms of AA, I would have done anything to not have to feel. And today I just know that those things won't kill me and that there is always, always blessings that come, always gifts, always things that I learn. Um, My life today is very full. It's very full. It's very peaceful. Uh, I am going through a lot of changes again right now. I had, I've been telling everybody, I had a marriage that I thought was made in heaven and that it turns out that might not have been the exact location. <laughs> I've, been, I've been married to this man that I just absolutely adored and he's sober a long time in Alcoholics Anonymous and I just loved him and I loved being married to him and we just had a great life together. And that marriage has just suddenly ended and I didn't ever think it would end. I didn't see it coming. I had no idea that that was going to be happening. Uh, But it's happening, you know, and uh, it's not fun. It's not fun. Uh, There was a point in there, believe me, there is such a fine line between grief and self-pity, and I am pretty familiar with that line. (laughs) I've had, you know, a lot of practice at this, and what I know is that I have to do the grieving, but I can't afford the self-pity. I can't afford it. I mean, all I have to do is start thinking, uh, poor me, and it's, you know, pour me a drink. And uh, I don't want to live like that. 
You know, I don't know what my life is. I, I heard a speaker, this was maybe in January. I went to a woman, uh, woman's uh, gratitude weekend, and one of the speakers there, she said that her prayer to God was to take whatever he wanted to take and to leave whatever he wanted to leave. And she said, that's a really scary prayer because God might think you don't need too much. And I remember thinking, oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. I've just lost too much. I'm just... Oh, no. Oh, I wish I hadn't heard that, you know. And I thought about it, and I thought about it. And what I realized is, you know what? Life is going to happen to me whether I give my permission or not. Life is going to happen to me. And what I, when I realized that, uh, you know, I could open my arms to this and just say, you may have whatever you want to have. You may take whatever you want to take. The only thing in my life, and I I mean this, I am not trying to sound like any kind of spiritual giant because I'm not. What I know beyond anything is that there's only one thing that I could lose that would really, really matter, and that would be my connection to my higher power, which is in my sobriety. That is the only thing, and I am the only one who can take that away from me, and that is a lot of freedom. Uh, you know, stuff doesn't own me. I have a beautiful home. Uh, I drive a car. I have a job. I just got hired at our central office in the desert, and I am the new mangler at central office. Um, you know, I get, as a hired employee for Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't get to participate in 12-step work. And I thought at first, gee, if the phone rings, why can't I answer it? Well, it's because of our eighth tradition. You know, uh, 12-step work must be forever free. Uh, and I am a paid employee, so that means I can participate all I want when I'm not working, but when I'm on the job, I'm paid, and I am not allowed to participate in that. But I get to hear it. I get to hear it all around me. I am sitting in that little office. I order the literature. I do the books. I, I uh, you know, fix the, make the schedule for the volunteers. But I get to listen to people come in and answer phones and talk to people about their lives, talk to people about their loved ones that they're afraid for. I hear the language of the heart around me all the time. People call our office looking for Al-Anon meetings, and I happen to know where they are. Um, you know, we have, it's, it's just an awesome thing. It's like God just said, look, you just need to sit down here and just do what I put in front of you and, uh, and just breathe, you know, just breathe. And, um, you know, this is a job that allows me the opportunity to come and share my experience, strength, and hope and to maintain the commitments that I've kept, and I'm grateful for that. And, uh, you know, I believe in the philosophy of no major changes in the first year. And in my case, I don't know. It might be quite a lot longer than that. <laughs> believe me, I've had just a load of change for a while. I, I wouldn't mind boring at all. And, um, you know, I just live today a very peaceful way. Um, I am not happy about the conditions of my life and the things that have happened. I may not have everything that I want, but I want everything that I have. And that is something that I couldn't say. I wanted to be anybody but who I was. I wanted to be somebody else. And today I would rather be me than anybody I know. I'm just fine with being who I am. And God is working on me and leading me. And today I feel absolutely treasured and cherished by my higher power. And I get, uh, you know, weekends like this and people like you that open your lives to me and love me and welcome me. This is how my healing comes. This is how my healing has come. There was a long time when I didn't want to stand up here and tell this story.
because um, I didn't feel like it was entertaining enough, you know. Uh, I mean, it was rough when I was in the middle of a lot of that really heavy grief to stand up and say to a room full of people, you know, you can be uh, 11 years sober and hate your life, too. Um, I just didn't feel like that was a good example. <laughs> But I just learned to tell the truth. You know, I learned to say I'm hurting and I'm lost and I'm scared, but I'm sober and I'm here with you. And I believe in this way that we have to live. Um, I'm just so very grateful for everything about it. I want to tell you about my children just to finish up. This is the last of it. I told you about my mom and dad. Uh, my oldest daughter, all my kids, my adult children have all moved down to where I live now, except one of them who married a, a Toronto guy. And uh, they live half of the year in Toronto and half the, half the year in Palm Springs. But uh, my oldest daughter moved down there, and she met a guy about two years ago online, excuse me, from Haiti with no green card. <laughs> and she married him, and they had a baby. And I was just flipping out. I was just thinking, does anybody but me think this is a bad idea? You know? I mean... What is wrong with you? I mean, what are you thinking? And the truth is I would have been wrong. Alex is a highly educated, very soft-spoken, very gentle man. And he loves my daughter, and my daughter loves him. And, I mean, that's just the end of the story. And the little baby girl that they brought into our lives, her name is Renaissance Marie, and she is gorgeous. This child is the most peaceful spirit I have ever met in my life. She is like 13 months old, and when she talks, she whispers. She calls me Grandma, Grandma, and she pats my little face, and she gets those little arms around my neck, and I'm telling you what, there isn't a care in the world that that won't fix, you know? Um, Tawny, my middle daughter, uh, hit the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous after Daniel died. She tried to kill herself one night, and she was drinking when she did it. And they, they, uh, they, she was 21 years old, and they told her, you need to go to AA, and she did. And my sponsor said, you just stay out of her way. You be her mama, and you just let her get her AA the same way you got yours. And so I just took my hands off and backed up. I mean, that kid was so sensitive, I couldn't say it's a nice day without getting an argument from her for a while. So I just stayed away from her. But she is sober. She's six years sober today. She met a guy uh, that lives in Toronto that I just adore. I just adore this guy. And they, um, they had my first grandson in January, and his name is Jack Henry, and he is just precious. And my daughter's six years sober, and she has a wonderful marriage. And, and I mean, she's just an incredibly powerful little spiritual woman, a tiny little thing, but she's, don't let that fool you. She's a little bomb. And um, my youngest daughter lives in the desert, and she's married to a guy that I love beyond words. And they have two children. One of them's name is Reese. And the other one's name is Susie Jane, and Susie's about two months old, and Reese is five. And I think she's going to need us one of these days. Um, I can't tell for sure. You know, I wouldn't want to diagnose anyone alcoholic. But we were all sitting around the kitchen table the other day, and we were talking, and she goes, wait, 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 wait. Shouldn't we be talking about me? <laughs> and oh, my God. And she's a complete drama queen. I don't know where she gets it from. Um, but she's just the light of my life. I just adore her. And Tracy, when she died, she had a little three-year-old, and that little three-year-old is now eight. And Andrea is the spinning image of her mom. And I want to tell you that there was, uh, this has been a long time healing, you know, and I'm still in it, and I'm going to be in it for a long time. But 
Oh, what a gift, what a gift. She has that same little giggle. She has the same hands and feet. She makes the same moves, the same expressions. It is absolutely incredible. And, you know, I have a very special place in that little girl's life because I am the only connection going to her mom. And she comes to me all the time. She loves to crawl up in my lap and say, let's look at the pictures, you know. Tell me the stories. Tell me what my mom did when she was my age. What was my mom's hair like when she was my age? I mean, she wants to know all those things. And she is just, just a delight. Um, she's a very smart kid and a very gentle kid, too. And she comes and asks some hard questions sometimes, you know. Uh, God has given me the ability, you know, I was a terrible mother to Tracy. I was very inconsistent when I was raising Tracy. But I am an excellent grandmother to Andrea. And there are times in those moments, those really intimate, hard moments, you know, uh, that, uh, that I just know that Tracy would just love this. And it's brought so much healing into my life. You know, God has given me the ability to stand up tall and walk through what I have to walk through. And believe me, I am, I don't want you to think that, uh, that I do this flawlessly or that I don't make mistakes. I, I can struggle, I can be so down that all I do is cry for a couple of days, you know. I have my moments of self-pity. Um, it's not anything I'm comfortable living with. I believe in the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I believe that if I always come from a grateful place, I won't have to die. I won't have to die of this anyway. Uh, I am beyond words grateful for my sobriety, and I am happy for my life. I'm very happy for my life. I really love who I am. I love who I am today, and I'm looking forward to what I'm going to be. I know that God brings special gifts. You know, my, my sponsor always says where, where much is asked, much is given, and uh, I believe that that's true. I want to finish by reading a paragraph out, out of the fourth edition of the Big Book. And this is out of a story called My Chance to Live. Life has not heaped monetary riches upon my head, nor have I achieved fame in the eyes of the world. My blessings cannot be measured in those terms. No amount of money or fame could equal what has been given to me. Today I can walk down any street anywhere without knowing the fear of meeting someone I've harmed. Today my thoughts are not consumed with the craving for the next drink or regret for the damage I did on the last drunk. Today I reside among the living, no better, no worse, than any of God's other children. Today I can look in the mirror when putting on my makeup and smile, rather than shy away from looking myself in the eyes. Today I fit in my own skin. I am at peace with myself and the world around me. Thank you for that gift.